0: Hi everyone, my name is Tim Michalashvili and I'm your host of the All Out Coach podcast where leaders share their personal stories and evoke emotions as well as their legacy by adding energy and excitement, helping inspire people to stretch themselves and lift others. Today, it's an honor and a privilege to have a friend of mine on this podcast as my guest. His name is Tom Shelton. Uh, I met him a couple of years ago in a course that we took together, MIT's Leading Organizations and Change. He's the Director of External Relations at the National Center of Education and the Economy with previous roles as the Director of the Kentucky State of Superintendents Managing the Educational System. So as a person who's had Teachers and physicians in my family that I've been influenced by. It was a tremendous pleasure to connect with you, Tom, two years ago. So, welcome to this podcast. Tom, how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, and I'm very excited to have this opportunity and look forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, likewise. It's a pleasure to reconnect. I'm really looking forward to helping a lot of the people who listen to All Out Coach. Be inspired by some of the stories that I remember you have told me and shared with me very generously. A little bit more about that course we took. At the time, two years ago, I was working in a small startup company in the pharmaceutical industry in which I've worked for 16 years, where I was tasked with helping restructure the culture and values of uh, the organization on behalf of the medical division, which I represented. However, it was a small company, and there were very limited resources in developing and stretching ourselves or our career, those of us who worked there. So I had taken a vacation and uh, really explored this course. So I was very lucky and fortunate to have met you there, Tom. And I want to start with my first question, and that is, can you tell us how you have stretched yourself and how you've developed your career over the years,
1: well, I've uh, tried to always take an approach to uh, lifelong learning, and that started back, you know, um, in my undergraduate work uh, in accounting. But it uh, it's continued. Um, I have uh, a master's degree in business administration uh, when I worked in business and industry, but I subsequently when I moved into working in education, um, it would seem like it was time for me to learn more, uh, to be more effective and efficient there. And so uh, I took uh, courses to earn a second master's degree in educational uh, administration. Subsequently had the opportunity to participate in a uh, postgraduate uh, certificate program at Harvard. Uh, Spent three years there working the certificate in executive educational leadership and um, upon completion of it made the decision to go ahead and earn my uh, doctorate, my PhD in uh, educational leadership and organizational development. When I became a a school superintendent in my first district back in uh, the late 90s actually, it seems like so long ago, I thought well that's probably enough uh, education and learning opportunities but Uh, Being in education, being around teachers and students uh, all the time and having uh, this focus on learning made me decide to uh, subsequently take additional courses. And uh, I, uh, as I moved to my second district um, where I became superintendent, pursued additional coursework, ultimately taking the course that uh, you mentioned while I was the executive director of the State Superintendent Association here where I took the course with you at MIT. And when I left that role, I uh, made a decision to take the position where I'm at now at the National Center on Education and the Economy. Um, I've had the opportunity to also participate in another postgraduate certificate program through the London School of Economics um, where I've just completed a certificate program in business international relations and the political economy uh, to help me in my position there. And I'm currently uh, have opportunities because of, uh, I'm uh, visiting professor at Johns Hopkins University right now and also teach adjunct here in Kentucky and a couple of the uh, regional universities here uh, that I'm always trying to stretch myself in learning because I always believe lifelong learning should be our focus, you know, we should never stop learning
0: yeah absolutely and that was one of the qualities that really amazed me given your role your senior role and responsibilities that you've had in the state of kentucky that you continue to take this course and you're an active contributor in our forums in which we participated together tom so i want to ask you a little bit about who inspired you to teach who have been some of the mentors in your life or to be in this field?
1: Well, when I left industry uh, and came into education, uh, I did that uh, because I met uh, an individual who, um, he would never admit this because he's too modest, but he uh, really changed my life and my whole focus. Um, His name is uh, Stu Silberman, and uh, he's now retired and living in Florida, but uh, Stu uh, was an amazing leader Um, And he tapped me on the shoulder a number of times and encouraged me uh, to pursue additional education, to take on additional leadership roles, as well as to uh, work with and develop others. Um, He strongly uh, believed in transitional leadership and developing those around us. Um, He helped me kind of focus on what I consider my primary driver that I've tried to always maintain and and, and use. And that is, is that if you're the smartest person in the room, then you need to change rooms. And I say that purely because I've always tried to surround myself with people who are smarter than me. And by doing that, it challenges me. It helps me grow. It helps me develop. If I'm focused on growth and development, it's a lot easier for me to make sure that I help others grow and develop as well. You know, the The whole focus of education to me is developing the capacity of others. I think teachers uh, want to develop the capacity of their students. And so as administrators and leaders, we have to make sure we develop the capacity of our teachers so that they uh, can in turn do that the same for our students. And that's what's gonna help us all to be a better society and uh, ultimately help our economy and our well-being in society is to make sure that we're always developing the capacity of others.
0: Well, I've been uh, certainly influenced by teachers in my family. I have teachers and healthcare professionals in my family who, are, who I consider my mentors. And my grandmother, for example, she taught for 32 years. That was her entire career, and uh, she was a personal, personal teacher for me as well. Uh, whom I admired, and uh, in terms of her characteristics and, and her personal qualities as well, not just professional ones, I want to ask you how you have risen up uh, to be trusted with more responsibilities over your career? What do you attribute to having more and more responsibilities uh, throughout the districts and those all those thousands of students that you responsible for in the beginning and then managing the superintendents later on.
1: If I had to sum it up, I guess um it would be uh on what I call my four-point uh leadership strategy. Mm-hmm. Um if I could touch on those four points. The first thing that I strive to do is uh work on relationships with others. I think you have to have a relationship with um, those that you're leading uh, as your peers, those that uh, are your superiors and, you know, any of those uh, other stakeholders who you work with. So the first point is relationships. And so when I've been put into leadership roles, I take the time to try to get to know the people that work with me and for me uh, and that I work with on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, I think it's important that we know you know, who your significant other is, who your children are, what are your interests in life, you know, what are your career aspirations. So I think you have to build a relationship first. Um, after you build a relationship, then it comes to what I, uh, my second point, which is expectations. Um, I think it's very important in a leadership role that um, you sit down and take the time to understand. Uh, what the expectations are of those who um, work for you and with you and that they understand what your expectations are and that you talk about those and you make sure that there's alignment in those. That's a whole lot easier if you have that relationship that I talked about first. Yeah, that's a lot easier to talk about expectations if you talk, if you have a relationship and then after expectations. The next uh, point that I always focus on in leadership is resources. So, you know, if you have that relationship and you've discussed expectations and you kind of are talking about and figuring out where you need to go, then you have to make sure the person has the resources they need to get where uh, you want them to be and where the organization needs them to be. And that could be what you described earlier and the training and development that they need. It could be in financial resources. It could be in human capital. Uh, Resources come in a lot of different ways, but if people don't have the resources to get the job done, then it's hard for them ever to meet the expectations that you have for them. And that leads to my fourth point, um, which is uh, accountability. Um, You then have to be able to hold each other mutually accountable. One that you're, providing the leadership direction, support, providing the resources they need. And then uh, based on that relationship that you have with the person, it's easy uh, to hold them accountable and say, you know, why did you get this done? Or why, how did you uh, not see this? Or why couldn't you have done this better? Because if you follow the four points once again, relationships, expectations, resources, and accountability, um, if you follow that model, I think it helps you uh, be an effective leader, which uh, builds trust and as you've mentioned, if you're going to truly inspire and lift others and move forward as a leader, you know you have to to have trust
0: yeah, uh, absolutely. I like that formula very much, Tom. One aspect that I find truly inspiring is that your work has centered around developing people and creating other leaders, which is a criterion, I think, for all leaders, a necessary criterion. You're not a leader until you create other leaders. Yet we are living in a time in which there is a shortage of mentors in this distracted digitally Uh, uh, digitally based world in which we live. So in the time of distance learning that is taking place now, particularly after the COVID-19 global catastrophe, this predicament that we're all living, uh, what are some different formats of education that you think would be more productive for the next generation?
1: I think the first thing you have to always think about when you're uh, focusing on what types of uh, approaches we need to use to uh, ensure learning is you have to look at the the characteristics of the learner and look at the desired outcomes of the learner. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're talking about students uh, in preschool through 12th grade who I've spent the majority of my career focused on, or whether you're talking about, you know, post-secondary at college or technical environments, or whether you're talking about you know, professionals, uh, and adult learning, you have to look at, you know, what are the desired outcomes and make sure that you're focusing, um, school around the learner. You know, the models that we've had that have been around for so long were, were focused more in my opinion on the teacher and on the instructor than they were on the learner. I see. And I think that has, um, been to our detriment. Um, we have to learn and recognize that, uh, people do learn differently. The other thing we have to recognize is, is that we live in an age where assessment and accountability are uh, very high stakes and people are watching and monitoring uh, things on a regular basis to see how performance is. Everybody wants everything done quickly. They want it done yesterday Um, and real change, real improvement takes place over time and it takes place at different rates depending on who the person is. Um, and how they learn. The other issue that has to be considered that you and I've talked about several times uh, is the equity principle. And I have to bring that in here. You have to look at uh, making sure we provide opportunities, uh, remove barriers uh, that, um, you know, prohibit or even inhibit, you know, the opportunities of others. And we've We're a great country, I still think America is the greatest country in the world, but we focus so much in our country around being equal that I think we've forgotten the concept of equity. Um, you know not everybody has the same opportunities, not everybody has the same resources as others, but everybody has uh, the possibility of being able to achieve and be successful at a high level and we're a better country when that happens and so. Um, we have to make sure that whether it's coaching, individual coaching, like uh, you know, you might have had apprenticeships if you think about it back in the uh, early days of our countries, so that's the way most people learned was they worked as an apprentice for someone else um, and they would learn their field or their profession that way. But in today's society, you can do that a lot through technology, as you mentioned, you can use the internet. Um, you can use chat rooms, you can use cohort groups. Um, you know, there are just so many different ways to do it. I, one of mine is uh, particular ways to learn is uh, I engage. I'm in three different book uh, study groups right now. I, I read at least one book uh, a week. Uh, I have for most all of my career. Um, so I'm in a, a book study group around one that's focused on leadership books one that's focused on uh society and social issues books and one that's just fiction reading uh, opportunity and i think um you know i learn and grow Uh, but i go back to what i said to you earlier Uh, i always try to surround myself with people who are smarter than i am and that's usually not very hard to do um because you know (laughs) when when you find good people you know um you can always learn something from them.
0: You mentioned a few different programs and approaches in the Kentucky educational system. Can you give us a few specifics on what unique educational approaches worked in Kentucky?
1: Well, one of the things that that we uh, tend to do is we tend to work within silos, Um, and it's, it's a natural thing that happens, but education can become a silo within itself. And as long, if education is not connected with the rest of the world, then we have uh, problems because we're, we're not gonna uh, be as effective, effective and efficient and our learners are not gonna know everything they need to know to be successful. So mm-hmm. what we've tried to focus on um, in the districts I've worked in and uh, the districts that I work with now is how do we make sure Uh, that the entire, to use the current buzzword that's out there, the entire ecosystem uh, supports education. And what I mean by that is, is that um, everybody has a stake in education. It's not just the teachers. It's not just the administrators. You know, uh, we have to make sure that if we're going to um, have, you know, society uh, that we want to have and have the, the economy that we want to have um, and you know, create productive citizens. Then we have to make sure that everyone's involved. So what we did in my first district, where I was superintendent, and then subsequently uh, thereafter in the other places I worked, was make sure that we had all stakeholders involved in developing the systems and the structures. And so um, I coined the phrase that we used in my first district: uh, community campus. And the idea was that learning doesn't just take place from eight to three in a classroom with four walls Monday through friday uh, but that's the way our you know p twelve education system and even our collegiate school system is structured is is you know um we don't seem to recognize that um one you know you need uh to have opportunities. After school, before school, weekends, nights, summers. Um, And so, what we did is said, you know, education and learning should happen at any time and in any place. And we created opportunities where we um, uh, had a health sciences academy, we had STEM academy, the uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, we had a business um, and banking and insurance academy. We created real-world academies where students could see the relevancy of what they were learning and how it applied in the workplace. And we did that by talking with members of our Chamber of Commerce, members of our economic development community, uh, local leaders um, in government, to make sure that we were creating opportunities where there would be job opportunities and where uh, students could uh, actually go straight from school into employment or could build into uh, a post-secondary uh, educational experience and ultimately develop um, you know, a career. And um, I think when you uh, involve all stakeholders like that and make sure that the entire ecosystem is supporting education and we recognize that education's everyone's business, then we can make sure students are successful and our future generations are successful. Because we have to face it, these are the people who are gonna be taking care of us. Um, You know, we're all living longer right now. Uh, And if I could just give one last personal example to close this statement um, or close this question. My uh, youngest daughter is just completing uh, her physical therapy program And um, I'm scheduled uh, not in the too near future to have uh, both a hip replacement and a knee replacement. And I'm I'm excited that I already have in my own family someone who can work with me and provide physical therapy solutions and help support me in that. And the reason that I bring that up is um, when she was a, a student back in one of the schools that I was responsible for as a superintendent, she uh, saw the need for physical therapy by her two grandfathers, who both had uh, limb uh, limbs replaced and had prosthetic uh, uh, limbs, and so uh, she has grown and worked toward that field her entire life. And you know that's the type of passion we need for learning. That's the type of love we need for learning. Is someone who learns something that they want to do from an early age and then has the opportunities. Um, in front of them where they can uh, do that later in life and become a lifelong uh, path of uh, career success for them.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing example. And uh, that's uh, something that has stuck with me uh, over two years since that first time that we talked in terms of that example that you provided with the community campus in Kentucky, which is something that's unique. It's a unique phenomenon. I want to ask uh, very quickly just what were some of the outcomes of the community campus uh, initiative because I remember you had mentioned those to me two years ago
1: yeah um, subsequent to me leaving that district um, there's been two superintendents who've been there both who are friends of mine and I so I stay in constant contact there I lived in that community myself for 25 years so um, I I know now that within that community uh, they have Um, a career path, you know, for students that is creating better engagement in this and better outcomes for students. But it's also creating um, opportunities for employment, filling uh, jobs uh, to where it's bringing business and industry to the area. Because, uh, you know, one of the reasons a business and industry will locate to a particular area is they have to have you know, uh, and employees there that they can hire. They have to have people they can hire that meet their needs. And, um, you know, so if uh, in the community campus model, we knew that what areas of business and industry were growing and which we're gonna need, um, you know, employees uh, because of the, you know, career trajectories of those who were already there and so we have uh, people who are gainfully employed coming right out of high school we have um, you know colleges and uh, universities who have partnered with the school district to create uh, career paths for the the students to learn professions and then uh, greater technical schools there Um, they've now i know um, that particular community is one of the communities who has a company that's been developed uh, through this whole process, that is um, using uh, tobacco plants, which is of course very native to Kentucky and the area, mm-hmm. uh, toward uh, pr- creating vaccinations uh, for uh, COVID. So wow. yeah. it's uh, it's pretty exciting to see what's going on there and in, in, in that small community.
0: You laid such a strong foundation, and uh, to have that legacy because I remember you talking about those success metrics. Uh, even two years ago and now to hear how they're merging education and the value of education with the economy, which I think was very forward thinking on your part. You know, teaching is such a fundamental profession that lays that foundation and that framework early on, or that ideology early on in the minds of children, uh, without which, without teachers, you really don't have a lot of the scientists, the doctors or lawyers, right? So I have a very... Personal appreciation for for teaching, uh, but teaching has certainly, I think, evolved. Uh, the perception and the value of our teachers has changed. I think, just as I reflect on when I was in elementary school, or when I was in college, even, and when then I went on to pharmacy school, and as I've see, as I've reflected, uh, what what I have observed is that the students right now they they have a little bit more demands of their teachers and a little bit less respect than I grew up with. For me, teacher was an authority. I did not even dare question a teacher's authority, um, but I tried my best to kind of learn and try to do the the best I could, even if the teacher was not great at communicating the information. Uh, I've had cases in my career in education where I had to take, a same subject with a different teacher, and I got a completely different uh, value out of it and a different grade as well subsequently than I did with, a, with another teacher. but I never questioned the authority. But to finish my thought here, the next generation or the, the, the young generation is now much more demanding and I think a little bit too impatient. And the one point that you made about wanting everything right away, trying to reap the benefits of any information that you are taught later on down the line, you know, it reminds me of the book Pause, The Pause Principle by Kevin Cashman. Try to take a pause and try to step back before you lead or you leap forward, you know, if you will. There's some latest data uh, that I've seen, Tom, uh, where a lot of the business school graduates, uh, they they no longer work for corporations and they're all, they're impatient they don't want to go through that experience that apprenticeship that you talked about and they uh, pay all that money to get that mba but after which they just start to be entrepreneurs so i think that you know a society uh, in which you have everyone uh, who is trying to be an entrepreneur and just work for themselves is just as unhealthy I think, as a society in which you have everyone who is subordinate and who doesn't have uh, any independent thinking either. So there needs to be some kind of balance between these two kind of approaches. Your apprenticeship model, the community camps model, I think is very forward thinking, particularly in this world in which we live now, where we need to be much more specialized in our skills than ever before, regardless of our industry. You know, I am in the pharmaceutical industry where my particular, in my particular role, I teach and I learn at the same time. And I teach and I learn from scientific experts who help uh, treat and transform many patient lives. You continue to learn uh, despite being a teacher. You continue to teach at Johns Hopkins. And um, I think that's what really makes your time here and your, your uh, personal stories so relevant to the next generation. What is one uh, advice that you have to these impatient uh, students graduating now? Uh, any any other specific advice you would have, Tom?
1: Well, uh, there's two or three things that come to mind from your comments. Um, the first thing that, that I have to, to bring up is the fact that um, in today's world, as compared to when you and I grew up, even though you're considerably younger than I am, um, You know content um, um, is a commodity now and let me explain my statement there Um, because of the internet content knowledge is available um, in a handheld device in a laptop um, you know in so many different ways now that it wasn't available when we were uh, kids and so teaching has had to change enormously from the purveyor of content knowledge to teaching students how to use that content and to apply that content, which is a much higher level. I won't get into Bloom's taxonomy, but if you looked at the, the levels of learning, um, teachers now can't just be uh, what we used to call the sage on the stage, where they're just dumping content knowledge on students because students have that content knowledge at their fingers. And so the first point I would make is, is that I think that creates, um, and impatience in students that you referred to, because it's like, why should I have to know what two times two is or two plus two is? Because I've got a you know a handheld device that I can mm-hmm. find the answer in seconds, you know, or less, or milliseconds. Um, and so they they don't see the relevancy in learning a lot of the things that you and I learn, and that creates that impatience. That's the first thing I would mention. Right. Yep. Second thing right. is that I would mention is. Um, you know, because we're talking about uh, teaching, evolving and changing so much, the other thing that uh, has happened is we've put so many demands on the teachers now because of, you know, regulations, of requirements, I mentioned earlier, assessment accountability. You know, we're the only country in the world, in in the United States is the only country in the world that, that still, you know, tests all of its students every year in reading in Maine. And teachers put so much focus on that accountability that they don't really have time to develop, you know, the other things that students need to help them be successful. So as a career educator, I feel I have to say on behalf of our teachers, our culture of uh, high stakes accountability and assessment doesn't allow teachers to do what they need to do to create students capacity to be where students would like to be. And students, I can tell you, that also creates impatience in them. I've seen so many students who are saying, what difference does it make if I make a a certain score on a statewide accountability score, that doesn't matter if I'm gonna be successful in life, right, because there's no tie to that, whether they get into college or whether they start a business or career. And then the third point I have to make is, um, in reference to your comment about how do we what would I say to students? What I would say to them is is that I realize we're in a society that's instant gratification, you know, that everything can be happened in just split seconds. We we read in 144 characters now. We uh you know everything is just instant short, we get you know instant blurbs of uh, information through social media and other places. Is that um if you really want to be uh, ultimately successful in life one of the things that we none of us do enough of including myself is spend enough time in reflection and what I mean by that is is I encourage teachers to do this when you're sitting down in planning meetings or when you're sitting down after school or you're sitting down in, in your daily you know time when you're preparing is spend time reflecting on what you have learned and how it applies to your life and what it can do to improve life for you and for others. And so um, I would just encourage everybody, I encourage my own daughters uh, to do this. Spend time and daily reflection of who you are, what you've learned, and how you can use that information to help others.
0: I don't think that enough really self-reflect to understand where their place is uh, in society. One of the reasons that i think young people do not do not self reflect as much maybe that instant gratification that they're looking for uh, which they owe to uh, the kind the type of world in which they live mm-hmm. and i think that was demonstrated uh, recently when they uh, went out in the beach went out to the beaches and just continued to celebrate and uh, without responsibility to others without you know during the covid-19 epidemic mm-hmm. in which they pose danger to others, much less to, to themselves. Uh, I, I want to ask about leadership, about company culture as well, and organizational culture. I once said on All Out Coach that if leadership were taught to children, then it wouldn't be such a foreign language as adults. I want to ask you to give us somewhat of an inside look into some of the leadership that you've observed and some of the lack of leadership among executive or among seniors or um, in, in your industry, in your field.
1: Okay. Well, um, um, I, First of all, I completely agree with you. I think uh, leadership development starts um, when you're working with children. And I think it should be part of, of what we do um, in our educational system. You know, there are great programs out there, um, not trying to sell anybody's particular program, but there's programs like Franklin Covey's Leader and Me, which is based on Stephen Covey's seven habits, you know, of highly effective leaders that teachers and schools can use uh, to develop leaders. Um, Because I do have to agree with you that that's where leadership starts and that's where we should teach it. Um, But to your point and to your question, you know, I've seen great examples of leadership. I mentioned, uh, my mentor and friends Stu silverman earlier who still is probably the single greatest example in my profession of leadership I've ever seen. Um, you know, he's, he's an incredible leader, incredible learner. Um, and then I've been exposed to those type of people because of what I mentioned earlier, always seeking out to learn from others, uh, to read and to, to find those examples. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there are great leaders that we can learn from in whatever field we're in, uh, but I, I really would like to focus on your, your, the part of your question where I saw the lack of leadership. Um, and what I would say in that is, is that um, I first believe that uh, leadership is based on who you are as a person, and what do you value and believe, and um, if we. Uh, have a value and belief that everyone can learn, everyone can be successful, and we want to see that happen for everyone else because we all benefit when that happens, Uh, then we have to live by those lifelong uh, values and beliefs. And I've seen uh, school board members. I've seen uh, superintendents, unfortunately. I've seen principals and other district leaders and even teachers who don't really believe that um, I've experienced it in districts where I've worked. Um, I experienced it uh, to the level where, you know, one district I worked, I ended up leaving. Uh, I wish I could have stayed there and, and uh, now in retrospect and probably challenged some people a little bit more because um, they wanted to say in public that they, you know, really believed in equity for all students and, you know, the opportunity to, for everybody to be successful should be there, um, but when I saw that they really didn't believe what they were saying and didn't want to commit the resources and time to do that, I made a decision to leave um, that you know that district. Um, so um, I'll kind of close my answer by saying, you know, uh, John Maxwell quote, you know, everything rises and falls on leadership, and if we don't have great leaders, um, then we're not gonna have great schools, we're not gonna have great corporations, we're not gonna have, you know, uh, good government, we're not gonna have anything um, without good leaders. And so, uh, you know, that's why I now work with the National Center on Education and the Economies because our whole focus is on developing educational leaders. And I think um, more of us have to focus on how we make sure that uh, we're, you know, investing in others to be good leaders
0: yep what is one rule or principle that you have applied that has worked for you is there a system that uh others that you haven't mentioned already and i know that you uh already shared uh, some great ones already but uh, any any other uh rule uh, or principle that you, will... you know um uh,
1: i would have to say that you know it's an old mark twain um, actually, that's that's a rule that it's uh, always do right. Uh, you'll amaze some, and you'll astonish the rest. You mm-hmm. uh, know, so um, the rule I always try to apply on is always do what's right, mm-hmm. no matter you know what. Um, you know, some people are not are not going to be happy with that. Um, I realize being a school superintendent that um, if I was going to be focused on trying to make everybody happy then I was never going to be successful at my job. And I was never going to be able to help our district move forward. Mm-hmm. And I'll give just one small example, uh, calling a day of school off for inclement weather, like a snow day. Um, yep. That uh, That's a normal uh, decision that a superintendent has to make. Um, I've, I advise young superintendents all the time. If you think you can make a decision to call off school and make everybody happy, then you're just going to be frustrated and you're not going to be effective because no matter what you do, somebody's going to think you should have gone on a day you called off or they should have think you called off on the day that you went. And so just do what you think is right in the situation based on the best information that's there, I think is a rule I try to live by and I think we all should.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of a uh, slogan at AstraZeneca that has stuck with me over the years, winning the right way, because I think that in that one short phrase was summarized an entire culture and an entire behavior or a specific behavior that all the employees uh, were uh, guided towards and uh, could interpret. Because uh, simple adjectives like trust, passion, hard work, right, um, are great, but they're not action verbs. And winning the right way Uh, is a particular example of a slogan that I think stimulates a specific behavior, you know, and that brings me to a question on character, and actually a few questions that I want to ask you on character, because uh, I'm sure you've had to deal with many different types of characters, so I want to delve into your work managing superintendents or managing in Kentucky uh, thousands of students in terms of, what were some of your behaviors or your guidelines when you hired or when you had to discipline people, which I imagine you had to do? What was your personal approach?
1: was never as successful at, at, at that as I would have liked to have been, but um, what our focus we tried to make was is hiring people that have the right dispositions, Um, that, you know, are going to make good decisions, that are going to do what is right um, over time. Um, You know, it's, people can say the right things in an interview. Um, People can look great on paper. Um, But the reality of it is, is you want to know, based on the uh, vision that you have, the mission, the values, the beliefs that you have uh, Mm -hmm. as an organization, that people over time, Uh, can not only commit to those, but can live those out in what they do. And so um, we would try to um, ask questions that would reveal their dispositions and how they would act in situations. We would um, ask questions that made them apply their learning uh, in a situation like a case study uh, that they might have to to do Mm -hmm. um, or a writing sample they might have to provide. Um, And so Uh, we would look at, you know, what is their, uh, what are their dispositions? And we would look to see, okay, what character traits does that reveal? Mm -hmm. Um, But the other part of your question is huge, um, is, you know, if you're going to establish the right type of organizational culture, um, you have to provide the accountability or the discipline on the other side. Um, You can't tolerate those things not happening, because then that basically shows the rest of your employees your students and everyone else um that you really don't believe that yourself if you're going to allow it uh for others to to do that and so Mm -hmm. um, yeah i had to discipline a lot of people had to make a lot of terminations as a school superintendent Mm -hmm. um especially in kentucky by law uh, you are the only person who can terminate an employee in a school district. You know, um, another supervisor can't terminate an employee. It has to go to the superintendent level and make that ultimate decision. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would always try to look at um, two things. One, um, you know, what was best for students and for kids, because that's why we're there. That's our ultimate vision and driver. And in an organization, I would say to a leader, that's the first thing you have to look at is, is what's your ultimate driver? what's the reason you exist? Um, and so I, ours was students. So the first thing I look at was what's best for students in this situation. And then the second thing is, is uh, which is directly tied to that is, is, um, is this person, you know, are, are they, did they make, you know, a mistake? Um, did they uh, have a lapse in judgment? Or did they do something that shows um, that they don't have the character? Uh, they don't have the values uh, that we want here in our organization. Uh, if someone makes a mistake, in most chance, most cases, you can give them a chance for redemption. But if someone shows a true character flaw, someone shows that they really, uh, you know, don't believe. And focusing on, you know, um, the right things, the values and beliefs that the organization has, then really there's no place for them in the organization.
0: Can a character flaw be misinterpreted for behavior in, in instances? For example, can, people can behave out of their character because of their environment, right? Because character is a colorful spectrum of different parts mm-hmm. of which you Express in different situation in front of uh, situations in front of different people. Is there a time where where you for example Behaved out of your character or or you did something that you That was inconsistent with who you were and the values that you stood for and why Uh, were there? What was the root cause?
1: I I alluded to it actually earlier and I I didn't go into it in depth, which I will now Uh, Sure I was um, in a situation where, you know, I was being challenged by uh, some of the the leaders that worked with me in a district I was in, uh, by some of stakeholders in the district, and even by two particular board members. Uh, I was being challenged to make decisions and lead our district uh, against my own values, philosophies, and beliefs, Mm -hmm. and, also it was against the values and beliefs that we stated as an organization and as a district um, yeah. and so uh normally what i would do most people would tell you that know me in that situation is i would have directly confronted it i would have brought it out in the public yep um i would have challenged it um and made sure that it was seen for what it was and you know i would have lived with whatever the consequences were um Uh, Most people would tell you that I I really struggle with dishonesty and I struggle with anyone who is portraying something that is not real and true. Um, But in that decision, I went against what I would normally do. And I simply made a decision to walk away. Um, And I, to this day, Hmm. look back and think, what if, you know, should, what should I have done? Ultimately, things worked out there. Uh, those board members ultimately lost their positions. Those staff members ultimately either moved on or lost their positions. Yep. Um, and you know, uh, a school district is a, is a organization with, a, you know, uh, an eternal lifetime, basically, <laughs> you know, it's going to be there forever. And so the district went on. Um, but I always think back, uh, should I have been more vocal? Should I have fought against what I saw uh, was a lack of, you know, good leadership. What was a challenge to providing equity for all students? And so, yeah, I, I went against my own character there. And, you know, it was a learning experience for me that I'll take forever.
0: Sure. I think we, we all have those. I can certainly think of a number of times in my career as well. Uh, but uh, I think that in your case, the fact that you walked away from it, must have been a function of you not being in an environment where you could depend on others supporting that kind of strong character that you actually had, which had stimulated you to walk away and to let go because of some concerns of ethics or what what have you, or what others that probably we won't go over, we won't go into too much detail, but I actually respect your decision and not being a part of it for much longer based on some of the discussions that we had uh, even two years ago. A little bit about the United States state uh, of education now. I've read some statistics where the United States lags behind in terms of standardized tests and math. Uh, Germany is way up there. Some other subjects as well or science. Where is the United States healthcare system and where is the Kentucky healthcare system in terms of standardized tests or how's the, how's it performing according to your estimates right now?
1: Well, it always depends on the measures that you use to evaluate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, you know, standardized assessments uh, and measures. Yep. You know, there's, there's a couple of things that that have to, to be understood there. First of all, if you look um, under the, results that most of the world reports under, most of the industrialized world reports under what's known as uh, PISA, which is administered by OECD, um, Organization for Economic Cooperative Development, um, out of Paris. Most uh, countries are members of, of OECD and report on PISA testing. We don't do PISA testing in the United States except for on sample basis. So that's the first thing is, is you have to think about, you're comparing not consistent types of exams in most cases. So you have to only look at just the sample results of PEAS in the US. But if you do look at those results, you're correct. And what is reported is if if the students who do take the PEAS exam in the United States shows that the US is behind, um, specifically in uh, math and science areas. Uh, So, um, but I I think it's just important to note that, as I mentioned earlier, teachers teach to the exam and to the accountability system that they're put in. And our teachers um, don't teach for PISA because PISA is not adopted in the U.S. uh, to be done. So I think that's one thing that has to be considered. But the other thing that I think is um, just as important to think about is, is that, again, we in the U.S. uh, assess every student every year in reading and math. No other industrialized, no other country in the world does that. Um, And so our own system is not the system that allows teachers to prepare students to be um, as successful as they could be in my uh, judgment and opinion. And then I have to add to that. The last statement is, is that the measures that are being used are changing rapidly because the work world is changing. You know, you probably hear a lot of conversation about what's the future of work look like, you know, with artificial intelligence and those things and how work is changing. Yep. Um, education is not changing as quickly as work is, but it should be. So if we're going to talk about what the future of work looks like, we need to be talking about what the future of learning looks like in education to change it to make sure that the two are aligned.
0: From an amateur standpoint, for me personally, I imagine that those standardized tests are not the best measure of intelligence. uh, And I would probably prefer those apprenticeships, uh, those hands-on apprenticeships that you had instituted that had really Impressed me, you know, uh, two years ago when you and I spoke as being particular metrics because you were able to tie the value of education to the economy, to individual development as well. So I would personally love to see more of those types of programs um, implemented.
1: If uh, I could add to that real quickly, just sure. as a, another statement yep. standardized assessments don't measure critical thinking they don't measure problem solving, they don't measure communication, you know, those are the things that we want students to know and be able to do uh, in today's world. As I mentioned earlier, content knowledge um, is a commodity now. Most standardized tests measure content knowledge, Mm -hmm. and so if all we're measuring is content knowledge, is it really even relevant to the education system and and to the life of long learning goals that we have for kids
0: and it seems like that's one thing that you would like to be transformed absolutely
1: i'd like to be part of that as i kind of close my career out you know i'm I'm on the waning days of my career i've been doing this for 36 years now yeah yeah and um you know as i finish the rest of my career my hope is is to be part of the even just a small part of the transformation of of the system as it moves forward
0: Thank you very much, Tom, uh, for a lot of your perspectives. I think that this, this has truly been a privilege. I appreciated your time. Um, I want to introduce you to those who are going to listen or see this uh, discussion of ours and uh, want, want you to tell us what your escapes are or what activities or hobbies you like. I know that you're you know you're, you're in Kentucky and you mentioned bourbon, sharing some bourbon one day, you and I, and uh, I know you are a fan of it. Anything else? Well, I would-
1: um, love being with uh, my family, uh, of course. Um, that's one of the uh, blessings that I've actually had, um, as compared to a lot of people during COVID, is I've gotten to be with my family, uh, which has been uh, great for me and it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to spend quality time even with my granddaughter, uh, you know, which has been great. So that's that's uh, one of the things that I have to mention. The other thing that I would mention, um, I'm an avid golfer. I play spring, summer, fall. I'll play four or five times a week. So I love to golf. And I mentioned earlier reading. I read avidly as well. You mentioned the bourbon. I'm, I'm a collector. One of the things about Kentucky that I have to say is, is that, you know, not all bourbons made in Kentucky, but 95% of it is. And that 95% is all made within a 60-mile radius of my house. Yeah. And so I live in bourbon country. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, and I love it and enjoy it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck in the surgeries that you have coming up uh, that you mentioned. Uh, a lot of health, lots of health to you. Um, and all the best, Tom. Thank you very much. Uh, how would people get in touch with you? Yeah they can
1: always find me on you know social media um, you know I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter um, I'm on Facebook and of course on LinkedIn but my personal email account is tom. Shelton13 at gmail.com so it's, it's tomshelton s h e l t o n one 13 at gmail.com
0: Okay. Great, thank you. And what's your handle on Twitter, on the social media? Just uh, Tom Shelton 47. So Tom Shelton 47, everyone. You can follow him. Uh, we have a leader, we have a mentor, and we have a, an expert in education. Tom Shelton, thank you very much for your time. Also follow All Out Coach. And uh, with that, uh, thank you very much, Tom. Have a great Thank
1: you very much. It was great to be here, and I enjoyed our conversation.
0: Likewise, likewise.